Hope you all are having a wonderful Sabbath day. It is a beautiful day here in Charlotte. I recently saw a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon, as you've heard from Mr. Ames. Calvin is this young boy who's uh, very precocious, who gets also in trouble a lot, and who has a toy tiger named Hobbes. And he actually makes some pretty insightful statements about life, about modern life. In one of the cartoons I saw recently, Calvin is flopped on a chair watching TV, and the imaginary Hobbes walks into the room and asks what he's doing. And Calvin replies, I'm killing time while I wait for life to shower me with meaning and happiness. Killing time while I wait for life to shower me with meaning and happiness. You know, brethren, everyone wants meaning and happiness, don't they? It's just that we often don't know how to find it. And some people are doing nothing, just waiting for it to pounce on them. Others are spending their time in relentless activity, but still don't find it either. One of the most famous kings of all time wrote almost 3,000 years ago, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Of course, you know who that is, Solomon. It's one of the most well-known phrases, perhaps, from the Bible. A famous commentary on life from the king who had it all and the king who'd done it all. And he summed it all up, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. You know, it could be a slogan for many today. They may not put it into those words, but many are struggling today in our world to find meaning and are blocked at every turn, so it seems. I'd like to look at the book of Ecclesiastes today. Let's examine today, what does Ecclesiastes say about life in general, and what does it say about our life in particular? Does our life have any value Or is it all vanity? If you'd like a title, all is vanity, or is it? All is vanity, or is it? To start answering this question, let's go back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 5. And we get an introduction to this king who wrote those words. At least the indication is. Here's the story of Solomon and how at the beginning of his reign in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, you've shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, This is 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 6. Because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, in an uprightness of heart with you. You've continued this great kindness for him, and you've given him a son to sit on his throne as it is to this day. 
Now, O Lord, my God, you've made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. Remarkable question and a remarkable response in Solomon. And God gave him that unusual wisdom and insight into life, into the human heart, the human condition, perception that was unequaled. We know King Solomon made many mistakes, serious mistakes in his life, and according to Scripture, turned away from God as an old man, influenced by his foreign and and pagan wives. And uh, his life ended, and we won't read it, but in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4, it says, So it was when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and God was angry with him. And he died. We don't know much more than that as far as the end of the story for Solomon. Whether he repented at the very end or whether he didn't. Which makes the book of Ecclesiastes that much more interesting. Because it's it's full of what seems like an enigma. Written by this man who tried everything who apparently ended life not on the same page as he started, and yet has some valuable insights for us. Let's turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 as we begin. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, it it doesn't say outright that it was written by Solomon, but it, it sure seems that that's the indication As we read in the book, in uh, chapter 1 and verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then when you start reading and and of all of the the blessings, all the wealth he has, certainly certainly strong indication that this was, in fact, Solomon. But he talks about the, the experiment that he made with unlimited resources to test what is worthwhile to do in life. And the book is an analysis of that. And the book could be, in one sense, taken as the epitome of hopelessness, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. But is it? We read in verse 2, that very thing. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And, and we are told in the Hebrew language when a word is repeated, that it is repeated for emphasis. And this word that is translated vanity, uh, a Hebrew word, hebel, hebel, something like that, it's repeated twice in this verse. So he wants to get get the point across that there is a very important message here about 
vanity. What, what does vanity mean? What does this Hebrew word translated vanity mean? The word at its root means vapor or breath. It's translated into English emptiness or fleetingness or futile, nothing or nothingness, useless, worthless. So was Solomon saying here at the beginning of the book that all of human life that the human experience is utterly worthless. He says, one generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. Verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Verse 16. I commune with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is grasping for the wind. It's interesting, later in the book, he says in chapter 3 and verse 18, and we're not going to read every verse of Ecclesiastes, but we'll just pull some out. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 18, I said in my heart, concerning the conditions of the sons of men, God tests them, that they may see that they themselves are like animals. So not only is life futile, but we are no better than the animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and all return to the dust. Is that the end of the story? Are we no better than the brute beasts? Or is there some hope in the midst of this short life that we have? Clark's commentary says some interesting things about this book. He says... In speaking of the book of Ecclesiastes, some fanatics have fallen into the extreme view upon reading that all here below was vanity. They have been so wrong-headed as to condemn everything as evil in itself. This world, according to them, cannot be too bitterly invaded against, and man has nothing else to do with it but to spend his days in sighing and mourning. Is Ecclesiastes a book about hopelessness. Adam Clark says no. He says, it is evident that nothing could be further from the preacher's intention. For notwithstanding, he speaks so feelingly of the vanity of human cares, schemes, and contrivances, yet lest anyone should mistake his meaning, he advises every man at the same time to reap the fruit of his honest labors and take the comfort of what he possesses with a sober freedom and cheerful spirit. 
On this head, Solomon gives his sentiments, not only as a divine and philosopher, but like one thoroughly acquainted with the foibles of the human heart. It was not his design to drive people out of the world or to make them live wretchedly in it, but only that they should think and act like rational creatures. Or, in other words, be induced to consult their own happiness. He's saying he's trying to make us think. He's trying to help us to think what really is the purpose of life. What creates value? Is there any value in our life? Solomon wanted to know, so he started searching it out. Chapter 2 and verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also was vanity, you know, was seeking after pleasure, was just following the senses. Did that bring happiness? Did that create value in his life? His conclusion was no. Verse 2 going on, he says, I said of, of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I search in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to Lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. You know, maybe wine, maybe alcohol, maybe the, the substances that, that, you know, in, in, induce a good feeling, maybe that is the secret to happiness, long-term happiness. His conclusion was no. Verse 4. I made great works, my works great. I built myself houses, planted myself vineyards, I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. Solomon had a lot of problems. But notice that a lot of the things he was doing here were good and right. There was nothing wrong with them. In fact, that sounds pretty good to me. It sounds kind of exciting to have unlimited resources to plant orchards and gardens and parks and plant lakes and ponds and fountains. And you start to read this and think about what it must have been like around Jerusalem and, and in other places where he was building these projects. It must have been beautiful. It must have been like the Garden of Eden. He acquired, I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and special treasure of kings and of provinces. You know, he was able to not just build orchards and plant gardens, but also build museums and gather artifacts and, and treasures from all over the known world. Jerusalem perhaps became a cultural mecca where people would come to, to see remarkable things. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. Can you imagine the, the greatest composers, the greatest musicians of the day? 
In verse 9, So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And what was the result? We read this. We've read this many times. You know. This was my reward from all my labor. I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. After doing all these remarkable things, he said everything was valueless, worthless. It was like trying to hold vapor in your hands, like trying to hold steam in your grasp. Can't do it. And later on, he said, not only did it not add value to his life, it made it worse. And he was so disgusted that he hated life. He hated life. Now, again, let's think about what he was doing. We're not talking about marrying the foreign wives who turned his heart to idolatry. We're talking about these things. There wasn't really anything wrong intrinsically in what he was doing. And yet the sum total was they didn't add anything to his life. Again, what is the value of our life? What's the value of your life? We were born. We were given breath. We were given life. We began to cry. We began to crawl and eventually stand up and walk and grow and eat and grow some more. And yet if time goes on far enough, we get older and eventually it is appointed unto all men once to die. That's the cycle. We go back to where we started. And what will our life have stood for when we get to that point? Will there have been any value in our life? Because we go out the same as we came in. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 13. Notice what what Solomon said. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune when he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry in his hand. You know, the kings of old, in the olden days, the pagan kings, they would they would have things buried with them, their favorite weapons their favorite horse, perhaps, their favorite wife, perhaps. Not very good deal for the wife, don't you think? But they can't really take it with them. Solomon was saying, we go out of this life just like we came in. And what will we have accomplished? What will be the lasting value of our life? Solomon performed this great experiment, you know, having unlimited resources. And when he was done, when he looked at them, they didn't give him any satisfaction. 
How does this relate to our time? Well, is our society not doing the same thing today? Are we not at right now going through a time of so much affluence, so much wealth, unprecedented wealth? You know, we're not rich like Solomon. <clears throat> Don't get me wrong. I understand that. At the same time, most of us live with comforts that Solomon never dreamed of. At the touch of a button, we can control the climate in our home. We have plush carpets. We have soft toilet seats, you know, if we need them. We have indoor plumbing. We have comfortable transportation. We can... Travel, you know, you can even adjust the air for the driver's side separate from the passenger side so everybody's happy. We get food from literally all over the world. Think about it. In, in the last week, where did your food come from? I would venture to say that in the last week, we probably ate something. You probably ate something outside, from outside of the United States, Central America, South America, Asia, Europe. We have tremendous wealth and access to things today, don't we? And even scientists today are, are, are coming to the same conclusion that Solomon did. They were frustrated because of the abundance of choices we have. Here's an article that came out some years ago uh, by an individual named Barry Schwartz entitled, When It's All Too Much, from Parade Magazine. When people have no choice, life can be almost unbearable. As the number of choices increases, the autonomy, control, and liberation this variety brings can be powerful and positive. But if the number of choices keeps growing, negative effects start to appear. As choices grow further, the negatives can escalate until we become overloaded. At this point, choice no longer liberates us. It might even be said to tyrannize. Have you ever walked into the grocery store and stood in one of the aisles and been bewildered with all the choices? And finally come to the conclusion, just give me two or three and I'll be fine. I don't need a hundred different choices. That's what he's talking about. He says it seems a simple matter of logic that increased choice improves well-being, but in fact the opposite is true. Respected social scientists tell us that increased choice and increased affluence have in fact been accompanied by decreased well-being. The American, quote, happiness quotient has been going gently but consistently downhill for more than a generation. In the last 30 years, a time of great prosperity, this was written in 2004, the proportion of the population describing itself as very happy has declined. The decline was about 5%. This may not seem like much, but 5% translates into about 14 million Americans not only that, but today as a society, more Americans than ever are clinically depressed. By some estimates, depression in the year 2000 was about 10 times as likely as it was in 1900. 
think of the different lifestyle we have compared to 100 years ago. And yet depression is 10 times what it was back then. Accumulating evidence from psychological research indicates that the explosion of choice plays an important role. It seems that as we become freer to pursue and do whatever we want, we get less and less happy. And that was in 2004. That was over a decade ago. More recent reports tell us that depression and mental illness have spiked since then, have skyrocketed since then, especially under among the young. So Solomon observed this, the exact same thing that some perceptive people are figuring out today that things don't really bring happiness. And yet, was Solomon consumed with pessimism? Or is this a book about a man at some point looking at his life and honestly evaluating his choices, his decisions, and consequences in the light of the truth, and actually giving us some really good advice. Brethren, are you frustrated? Do you have tension in your life? Do you have stress in your life? Do you sometimes feel like you're going through the motions? A lot of activity, but no real satisfaction. We can sometimes get in a rut If you sometimes feel like that, keep reading. Don't stop in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 or 3 or 4. There's much more. Notice in Ecclesiastes 2 in verse 24. We're going to read some of the parenthetical thoughts interjected between the negative things Solomon was talking about to really find out what was the ultimate point. And what is the takeaway for us? And what is the spiritual lesson that gives us hope in a world that is short, in a life that is short, and yet not meaningless? Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 24. What did he say? Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. You know, right after he talked about the futility of, of work and futility of life and how he hated life, he said, if we have our priorities right, if we're walking with God, if God is at the center of our life, if we're focused on the right thing, It can be wonderful. Life can be an adventure. Life can be a gift. Life can be a challenge. Life can be about growth and about learning and about growing and training for something much better. That's God's perspective on life. And the eating and drinking and the enjoying the fruits of our labor is satisfying because it's in the right context. It's in the right perspective. Solomon also talked about the kingdom of God. Notice in chapter 3 and verse 10. 
he says, I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. And that's kind of a hard-to-understand reading of this clumsy translation. Let's read it in the Young's literal translation. He says, the whole he has made beautiful in its season, also that knowledge he's put in their heart, without which man finds not out the work that God has done from the beginning even unto the end. In other words, God has to put in our heart an understanding of why we're here. And that gives life meaning. And understanding that this is a training ground, that this there is something that we're training for. We're preparing for. And the blessings of life can be enjoyed in the, in the process. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 18. Here's another thing that, that Solomon said. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse, verse 18. Here is what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. It's, a, it's God's gift. God has given us life as a gift. You know, we can sometimes even feel guilty about enjoying life. But God has given us life. Life is a gift. Whatever time we have, whatever opportunities we have, it's a gift every day. We've had a couple of deaths here recently. And it reminds us that every day of life is a gift. He says in verse 20, For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. You know, there are some sad things in life that happen to us. But God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be filled with focus and joy. And giving us work to do helps us do that. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 1. Here's another observation Solomon made. He said, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now, what a depressing thing that is. The day of death is more, is better, is more impressive than the day of birth. Well, if we understand the purpose of life, it makes sense. If we understand that this life is for a training ground to, to run a race and prepare, and at the end of life, when God says this individual, this spirit-begotten individual is ready for my kingdom, and they've prepared, and they've prepared well, the day of death is better than the day of birth. 
It all is depending on our perspective, isn't it? Death is an enemy. And yet when we understand what's coming, we are reminded that this is only a time of preparation. Verse 2, better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the, the living will take it to heart. We're reminded when we go to a funeral, as we had for Mrs. McNaughton here uh, just this past week, we are reminded about why we're here and the purpose of life and what's really happening and what we must be doing. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Why? Because we're thinking about what we're doing while we're doing it. We're analyzing our life, and we're not just spinning our wheels. And we're preparing for eternity. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 13. It's interesting that Solomon recognized the positive part that even correction has in our life. That it's bitter at first, but it goes down into the belly and, and we learn from it and we grow from it. And he said in Ecclesiastes 4.13, Better is a poor and wise youth and an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. Interesting statement when you think about who made it. Solomon. When did he make this statement? Well, we don't really know. But at one point in his life, he understood that no matter how long we live, we have to keep taking correction. No matter how far we go, we've never attained, we've never made it until God says we've made it. We're preparing for something. So he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 7, Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 7, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, all your days of, of just a few years on this earth, just a few years in this world. doesn't mean... In this sense, meaninglessness, it just means that that our life is relatively short. For that is your person in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Now is the time to act. Now is the time to prepare. Now's the time to work. Now's the time to overcome. Now's the time to set goals. Now's the time to accomplish them. To use whatever time we have available and make the most of it. Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are 
vanity, our fleeting, our here today, gone tomorrow. Not necessarily meaningless, again, in this sense, but they're fleeting. This was a reflection of a man who apparently had already made mistakes in his life and already wanted to say, look, I understand some of the things that I did that didn't turn out the way I thought they would. And here is an honest look at what I did. And don't follow the same pattern. Physical life is temporary. It's vanity here today and gone tomorrow. And the only way to live for fulfillment is to let God judge us along the way. First uh, Peter 4.17 tells us that judgment is on the house of God today. That we are under judgment. That doesn't mean a, a court scene. doesn't mean that God is condemning us. It means he's our coach. It means he's evaluating us. It means he's working with us. Day by day, he's, he's giving us tests. He's giving us our courses to run through. And when we don't pass a test, he lets us take it again. He works with us. But we must live within the confines of his law and his his judgment. So what's the whole conclusion? If you sum up the, the whole conclusion of the matter, I know you're getting ahead of me. You know what it says. But why are we here on earth? What's our purpose? Is there a purpose? How do we live a productive and healthy and balanced and happy life? Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. He answers that question. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. You know, what's the end point? What's the punchline? Why are we here? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. The whole duty of man, I think the King James says. You know, the very thing that, that mankind wants to cast off, the law of liberty, the the law that gives us liberty because it it takes away the shackles of the consequences of sin. And yet mankind wants to cast that off. Our duty is to, to fear God and enjoy living life within the parameters of his law. And that's why we're here. What are some specific lessons we can learn from Solomon's writings in the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, let's talk about that a little bit in the time remaining. Number one, number one, we were meant to be happy. We were meant to be happy. God wants us to be happy. You know, many people, many brethren even, suffer from depression and discouragement. Am I doing enough? Am I pleasing God? What does he think about me? What does he really think about me when he sees me? Am I pleasing to him? You know, brethren, God wants us to be happy. Do we believe that? He doesn't want us to be forever shackled with self-doubt as we go through life. 
always wondering if he's going to, to, to smash us in the next instant. He wants us to be happy. Many brethren struggle through life not, not really believing that God means what he says. In John 10 and verse, uh, verse, verse 10, Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. No, this is not a health and wealth gospel, but yes, God says, and Jesus said, he wants us to, to be happy while we're here on this earth, even with trials, even with difficulties. Let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Because there are some interesting things about uh, the law of God that was written and how his laws produce fruit. And over and over again, we see in the book of Deuteronomy and other places that his law was given, and if you keep it, it will be well with you. It was given so that it would be well with you. Let's look at a few of them. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 40. Moses told the the people, again, as they were preparing to go into the land, he said, You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God has given you for all time. Now, how many ways can we understand that it may go well with you? What does that mean? Is God seeking our well-being or not? Were his laws designed to help us to live within parameters which, which help to give us, provide us a way and consequences that are for our well-being or not? Deuteronomy 5 and verse 29. Notice. This is the Lord speaking, the eternal speaking. I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they would have such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that it may be well with them and with their children forever. You get the feeling that God is just, is just, is pouring out his heart. It, 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 Oh, that they would just do what I said because it would be wonderful. Does God want us to be happy or not? Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 24. The Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us. If we're careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So how many ways can God say it? That he tells us to do something, do certain things for our good always. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God wants us to be happy? And this is supposedly the, the, the legalistic, rigid, confining Old Testament law right here. Where he says, do this so that it may be well with you. God wants us to be happy and, and confident. 
and, and at, at peace <clears throat> and healthy and have a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind as we read in, in 2 Timothy 1.7. Are we? Do we have that? Or are there patterns and habits that are undermining our happiness? You know, Solomon gave some warnings about things to not do, and uh, Ecclesiastes is full of those. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Does God want us to be happy? Do we believe that? Or are we stuck in the rut of, well, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't really trust God. What did Christ say on the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5 and verse 1, Seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now this word blessed could easily be switched with the word happy. Essentially the same thing. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Unless we understand what mourning is all about. Taking our life seriously, that yes, there are times to mourn. There are times to chasten ourselves, and ultimately it brings us happiness. Doesn't mean we don't have trials, don't have tests along the way. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Happy are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Do we have trials? Yes. Do we have difficulties? Yes. Do we have tests? Yes. Do we have obstacles? Yes. But do we have meaning in life which gives us true happiness? Yes. Knowing that it's, it's all for a purpose. So if you're struggling, if you're struggling... <clears throat> And if you're not happy, as a way of life, we all have our ups and downs. You know, we need to, to tap into what God is doing and tap into how he feels about us and thinks about us and what he wants. He designed us to be happy. And that's one of the lessons from Ecclesiastes. Number two, another lesson, money can be a curse. Money can be a curse. Now, I know that it's one of those curses that most of us would like to be tested on, at least a little bit, right? You know, Lord, try me. You know, I, <clears throat> just uh, let's see how I do. Like in Fiddler on the Roof, remember the Tevya? He, um, he says, Dear God, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, that it's no shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either. So what would have been so terrible if I had a small fortune? And I'm not going to sing the rest of the song. You can ask Mr. Hernandez to sing it sometime. He did a great job at our fun show a few years ago. 
But at the end of the song, he says, Lord, who made the lion and the lamb, you decreed I should be what I am. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? You know, money can be a curse. Solomon explained that. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And why is this important? Because sometimes when we don't have it, we think that if just I had money, I'd be happy. If I just had more money, then everything would go great. And is that the truth? Yes, there is a certain amount of, you know, material uh, well-being we need to take care of our needs and our family and and contribute to the work and and help others. But does money really bring happiness? There are so many curses that are a part of it, as Solomon was talking about. Notice in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor. This is also vanity and grasping for the wind. You know, sometimes accumulation of physical things, what does it bring? Comparison with others. And so whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, we get focused on that. Who has stuff and who doesn't? And then that becomes the issue. And James said, it can even be an issue in the church. And he said, brethren, don't let it be an issue. Material things come and they go. Do things change how we think about others? Do we give more respect to those who have more? Or on the other hand, you know, the, the, the law said don't be partial for the rich and don't be partial for the poor. Be impartial across the board. But do, do we judge others on what they have? You know, that's something to think about. Humanly, that's, that's something we do. But we have to guard against that. Here's another one, Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 11. It, uh, it says here, Solomon said, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? You know, we, we, can, uh, we hear of sports millionaires who, who have to uh, file for bankruptcy because they can't make their mortgages on their five different homes. The more money we have, guess what? The more expenses we have. Our expenses increase to, to, uh, to equal the income. And again, we can always think, if only I had more money, all my troubles would cease. Is that true? Solomon said, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. Another curse is leaving your money with someone who you don't want to leave it with. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 18. Notice, <clears throat> notice in here. 
Solomon said, Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself under the sun. This also is vanity. You know, he was really frustrated by that. Look at all that I've done. Look at all that I've accumulated. And I'm going to leave it to someone else. Do we see how he was thinking only, at least at that point in time, about himself? His focus was on his material things. Now, why is this important? Because we are warned about the era we're living in, a time when riches will be increased and, and, and people will be increased with goods. And we must not let our focus be on them. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 10. Why do we have material things? Yes, to feed our, feed our families, to take care of ourselves, to, to serve others. Are they just to serve ourselves? Of course not. And that was what Solomon was missing. What were they designed for? Not just to be accumulated, but to, to be used, to be to feeding others, to be serving and, and helping and serving God. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 10. Notice, it says... When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. You know, we may not be wealthy, but I'm not aware of a whole lot of us going without meals. And if there is someone going out without meals, we need to know about it. And anyone who later watches this on on the recording, Let your pastor know about it if someone is going without. But most of us haven't missed a lot of meals. We are fed. God provides for us. Do we have difficulty financially? Of course. But we have enough food on the table. And God says, when you have eaten and are full, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he's given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. Are we blessed? Are we full? Did we have a meal this morning? Did we have one at lunch? Are we going to have one tonight? Yes. So we are full. Are we keeping God in the center of the focus? of who provides our needs. You know, our nation is not. Our people out there are not. And that's one reason why they're going to go into captivity. They are not seeking God and not appreciating the blessings they have. He says, Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and flocks and multiply and your silver and gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Verse 17, and then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. 
And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Now, brethren, you know, most of us may not think of ourselves as wealthy. But let's look at that in terms and in the context of what he's saying here. We all have a full stomach. We are rich, truly. Do we thank God for it? We must guard in our life to not let money become a curse, but always thank God for what we have. Money is a tool. It is a terrific slave, but a terrible master. It must not allow it to be a curse. Number three, another takeaway from the book of Ecclesiastes, we must teach the next generation they have more value than just as consumers. Let me say that again. It's kind of long. We must teach the next generation that they have more value than just as consumers. We are a consumer society today. You know, it it wasn't that long ago that when, I think it was after the 9-11 attacks, that our president at that time, said, the most patriotic, I'm, I'm roughly quoting, I can't remember exactly word for word, but the most patriotic thing you can do is go out and spend. Go out and spend money. Don't stop spending money. Why? Because ours is a consumer-driven economy. You know, we're not rewarded for saving money. <laughs> We have to keep spending it. Why? Because that makes goods need to be built, and that keeps people in jobs, and that keeps money traveling through the system. But the problem with that is that we can come to see that our value is just in consuming, and we get caught up in this merry-go-round of consumption. You know, why has the interest rate been at near zero for years? Because the the government is desperately trying to get us to consume, get us to take on more debt, get more money flowing through the system. We must explain to the next generation they have more value than just consumers. It's easy to complain about young people today, <clears throat> how they're obsessed with their, their smartphones and their stuff. And we'll get to that in a second. But brethren, who raised the young people? Who's in charge of their upbringing? You know, we can wring our hands about the young and about their habits and about their patterns, but... Who, are, who were their teachers? Who do we acknowledge as the ones who set the pattern and the one who sets the habits and the one who allowed things to go as they are today? Who are their examples? Are we looking in the mirror? Who is allowing the patterns of the use of technology and the focus on consumerism today? You know, consumerism has been around a long, long time, hasn't it? Solomon was talking about it. We were reading about it just a few moments ago. 
Every generation perpetuates it to the next. And our job in the church and our job in our families is to to try to stop the cycle and to try to start a new and better pattern. I'd like to talk just a few moments about the unique dangers of tech today to our young people. An article appeared in the September 2017 edition of The Atlantic just uh, recently entitled, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? The subhead reads, More comfortable online than out partying, post-millennials are safer physically than adolescents have ever been, but they're on the brink of a mental health crisis. You know, the interesting point of the article is that young people are, are spending less time out getting into trouble and out with their friends, more time at home, but the dangers are still there. And frankly, and we can, we can think about all the dangers associated with the Internet, and frankly, their mental health state is worse than it was just a few years ago. There's another writer, uh, Matt Walsh, posted this article uh, two days ago, August 3rd, 2017. And he entitled that, Dear Parents, there is absolutely no good reason to buy your child a smartphone. You can kind of tell where he's going with the article. <clears throat> he said, I was in the airport a few days ago, a few weeks ago, when I noticed an interesting scene. A mother and her young son, he looked to be about nine or ten, were sitting on the seat across from me, both looking at their phones. Mom apparently was having some trouble with the reception on hers, so she asked to borrow her son's phone. He gave it to her, and that's when she asked a rather shocking question. What's your passcode? Not only did this prepubescent child have a phone, not only was it password protected, but his mom didn't even know the password. Could there be a better illustration of modern parenting? I thought of this exchange when I read the article just published in The Atlantic, the one I was referring to a moment ago, arguing that the current generation of adolescents are being destroyed by their iPhone addictions. We've all heard these arguments before, but seeing as we haven't done anything to fix the problem, we probably need to hear them again. As the author explains, kids today are isolated and antisocial. They don't do anything but stare at their phones all day. They're lethargic. They're unhappy. Rates of adolescent suicide and depression are skyrocketing, and it is not a coincidence that this spike has occurred in direct correlation with smartphones becoming a household item for kids. Now, please understand, I'm not against smartphones. I have one. It's in my pocket right now. And given the right parameters and given the right instruction and given the right restrictions, they're a great tool. But as the author is explaining, even adults have a hard time controlling these things. So how possibly can our children? He says this, I don't fully understand the psychology of it, but it's clear that there's something about the world behind the screen that sucks us in and dominates our lives. The pole is almost magnetic. It requires an immense amount of discipline to properly regulate how much time you spend in this realm. I have to be here for my job, and it's often difficult for me as an adult to know when to put the phone or laptop down and return to real life. 
Most nights I tuck it all away and do something else with my time, but there are nights when I pick up my phone just to check one thing, to respond to an email, to post something on Facebook, whatever, and next thing you know, it's three hours and 18 YouTube clips later, and I feel like I've spent the entire evening in a coma. Can I expect my children to resist the urge to become screen-obsessed robots if I can barely resist it myself? Can I regulate my child's phone time if I can hardly regulate my own? The point is, these are powerful tools. Powerful tools that that we are putting in our hands and putting in our children's hands. And we've got to analyze how they're being used. Not just complain about how the younger generation is, is using them, but look at ourselves and teach them restraint. And maybe even understanding that there are certain ages where kids don't need a phone. They're not ready to drive. They're not ready to have a phone. I'm not saying that's exactly the age, but if you know, we, we think of a car as being dangerous in the hands of a child that's not ready to use it. A phone is dangerous in the hands of a child not ready to use it. He ends it squarely where it needs to end by looking at the motivation of parents. He says, well, perhaps that answers my earlier question. Parents enlist smartphones as a form of daycare, so they don't have have their own Facebook or Netflix time interrupted. We want our kids to be zombies because zombies are easier to deal with until they start feasting on human flesh. He added that. I think that's a joke. The fact that it robs them of their childhood, obliterates their social skills, steals their joy and vigor for life, exposes them to every form of sexual debauchery known to man, is a price worth paying. At least it gets them out of our hair for the moment. We've got other things to do. Well, not things to do, but websites to visit, links to click, videos to watch, things, likes to count. Of course our children are zombies. They're being raised by them after all. Ouch. You know, as parents, how much are we really engaged at being engaged with our children? Or do we want to escape from them? And are we using tech to do that? And are we setting the same patterns? And they're not yet capable of of enforcing the discipline on themselves, much less than, than we are. As of several months ago in the United States, there are more than 180 million smartphones. Over a half or two-thirds of our population, reportedly, that's the number of smartphones there are in the United States. Today, around the world, there are between 1 and 2 billion smartphones at use. By 2020, there are expected to be 6.1 billion smartphone users. An explosion of these tech machines. 
Now think about it. What was the result of Solomon's experiment? The obsession with taking in whatever the eyes see without regulation, never requiring any hold and any stop of anything that entered his eyes. He took it. If he saw it, he took it. The end was he hated his work. He hated life. What are the results so far of this grand experiment of having push-button access to everything through these devices? So far, a spike in the number of people, especially young people, who have wound up hating their life. What are the fruits of this modern Solomon-like experiment? Many have come to the conclusion that they hate their life. Suicides have spiked among the young. Parents, what are we doing to counteract this? You know, some practical things. What are some things we can do? First of all, don't feel guilty about not giving a kid a smartphone until they really need it. Doesn't matter if Someone else has one. Doesn't matter if their friends have one. We're not responsible for their, their friends. We're responsible for our kids. If they do have a smartphone, don't let them take it to bed. Don't let that be the input, the last input of the day and the first input at the beginning of the day. What is supposed to be the, the last thing that we think about and the first thing we think about the next morning? God, God's word, faithfulness of God, power of God, you know, soaking our mind in God's thoughts through prayer and, and study, as opposed to access that we're talking about. You know, if they use the phone for an alarm clock, Spend the $3.75 and get a real alarm clock. They're cheap. At dinner, simple. Everybody put the phone away and talk. Be face-to-face. Put blocks on it. Use good filters that filter out the junk. And keep the password and don't let them be the one who is the only one who knows the password. Frankly, they shouldn't know the password. You are the responsible adult. We are the responsible adult. Set a limit on screen time when books are allowed, but not screens. Remember, remember those things called books? Fascinating stuff. And by the way, parents, make yourself do these things too it won't stick if we're not doing it ourselves let me speak directly to young people and i use that term loosely young people as anyone who is engaged in this popular culture of using tech in this modern world and facing the struggles of controlling this technology self-monitor Self-monitor. Be conscious of how it makes you feel when the screen time is excessive. Analyze your thoughts. 
understand the economic engine of advertisers is not out for your well-being. They are out to make a buck. Learn to understand how they work, how they prey on your senses, on your feelings. Learn to be perceptive and recognize the lies they tell. I heard it in advertisement this morning. I was listening to music on Pandora, working on this sermon. I kid you not, this was about iPhones. The man says, what's better than iPhone 7? iPhone 7 on Sprint. The woman says, that makes me happy. Things do not ultimately make us happy. Meaning makes us happy. Purpose makes us happy. And we've just been inundated with data that show these machines are not making people happy. But the advertising message is if you have this new iPhone on Sprint, you will be happy. Be honest, be brutally honest, like Solomon was when he wrote this book, because he was looking back and he was being brutally honest. Only God is your BFF and not your smartphone. And you know, if you need help, if you can't control it, be honest. Enlist someone you trust to help you control it. Your well-being is worth it. God wants you to be happy. He loves you. He cares for you. Life does not consist in the things we possess. Christ said that. You were not made simply to be a consumer. Even though that is what the machine wants you to just focus on, just consuming. We have a much greater purpose than that. I don't have time to go through them, but Ecclesiastes chapter 12, read it for yourself when you have time. It talks about an advice from an older person talking to younger, thinking when you're young, remember your creator because your life is fleeting and it won't last forever. And there's going to be a time when your your legs don't work so well and your ears don't work so well and your eyes grow dim. And finally... You die. So remember your creator before the evil times come. God wants us to have meaning and fulfillment in our life. The book of Ecclesiastes is not hopeless. It actually is laying out the traps and laying out the pitfalls of living a life that is only focused on things. And it's giving advice to people, all people, and young people, about how to seek for true happiness. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 8, and we'll conclude here. Life was not created to be meaningless. Romans chapter 8 And verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Don't we want more of that? Don't we all need more of that? Life and peace. And don't we want to convey that and pass that on to our children and to the next generation who is going to have to live 
in a society that for the time being is not going to get any better but worse. How are we preparing them for that time? Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, well, no matter what we go through, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Why are we here? Why are we going through trials? It's a testing ground. We're learning. We're preparing. God is judging us. He's helping us. He's guiding us. He's bringing us to a point where he can bring us into his kingdom. And finally, in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. If God is for us, verse 31, who can be against us? You know, we were not made to be unhappy. We weren't made for the sum total of our worth to be just how much we consume in our lifetime. We were made to, to train, to be prepared, to be a part of God's family. Let's view every day as a gift to be cherished, to be valued as an adventure that God is leading us along. Let's not fall for the traps of materialism of this age, which brings many sorrows. Let's impart that to our children. Let's let them know how important they are to God, that he loves them, he wants them to be happy, not just to follow along like so many lemmings off the cliff. But there are cause and effect rules that work in life. Let's seek God's presence in our life. Because all is not vanity unless we turn our backs on God. The book of Ecclesiastes is a fascinating glimpse at some traps, at some things to avoid, but also tremendous hope that God gives if we walk with him and if we have a life filled with meaning. That is the message. If God is at the center, that is the message of God from God for us, from the book of Ecclesiastes.